Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to live my life, putting purpose over profit. Too many fallen soldiers, too many slain prophets. Eyes on the prize, yeah, I gotta watch it. Agents amongst us, get your hand out my pocket. I'm sick with the pet. Brothers and sisters are sick in the pet. Oppressed by the man, attacked by the clan. America's plan, depression sets in. People becoming so hopeless. Said we can't breathe, they still choke us. They put the body cam on, it's either turn off or out of focus. Yeah, another death, another life. They pull the trigger, no thinking twice. Cops be wildin', the killing youth. The new Jim Crow, a different noose. It's the beast, it's the beast, mark of the beast. Cease and desist, increase the peace. Move in silence, don't make a sound. But when they come, stand your ground. R.I.P. to all the martyrs. Say your prayer, Heavenly Father. Black lives matter, black lives matter. Welcome everyone to the Creative Gourd Live. And I absolutely love the intro, but unfortunately, those lyrics are just getting truer and truer each day. It is outrageous. Mm, 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 mm. I was just thinking the same thing. I mean, particularly the parts cops be wild. And right? you know, following afterwards, killing youth, but oops, uh, they don't discriminate. So, yeah, <laughs> exactly. man. Yeah. And uh, speaking of, uh, let's say, some discriminatory comments, I guess we can go right into uh, Mr. Joe Biden. Let's so, get right into it. <laughs> anyone has been living under a rock. And to be fair, sometimes I do try to, you know, detach myself from society just to get a, you know, more of an introspective view without any filters or anything external clouding my own personal perception. So it, it can happen. So just for those who haven't been aware, this is what happened. But I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. So, Mr. Israel, when you first heard this, what was your first impression? My first impression was, one, did you really just say that? Um, and two was not only did you say that you doubled down because he didn't even use the proper grammar, the proper grammar. He right. used uh, black African American vernacular. He used ebonics. He used slang. He said, "Then you ain't black." He didn't say you're not black. You do not identify as black. He said you ain't black. So he really, really even doubled down on that. So I'm like, hold up, you're on the Breakfast Club which is the platform that has become a place where, you know, all politicians who want to, however, connect with, um, you know, particularly marginalized groups, black and brown folk, uh, that seems like their right of passage, they have to make a stop there, or at least that's what the folks in the Breakfast Club um, call them out and say, you need to make a stop here so we can talk to you. I mean, part of that is problematic in some, in some ways, um, but I'm also appreciative of the fact that they're even coming to that place to give some folks access who might not have access uh, to hear these politicians in different forms. Um, but when I also heard it for the first time, I wasn't surprised. I really wasn't surprised because if you look at his history, um, if you look at Biden's history and the things that he always has, the gaffes or the guffaws, however you want to pronounce it, 
he always has these things that he says. And it's like, hold up, why, how many times are you going to put your foot in your mouth? Like, you didn't even take your foot out your mouth. How many feet do you have? Like, it's just so many times. And you're like, you're stumbling over your words. You're tripping over your words. You're saying the wrong things. And it's like, do you really believe that? Or is it our fault? Is it our fault for making you feel so comfortable? Real comfortable when you just walk up inside like it's the Holiday Inn and you can do whatever you want. And you demand these things, but you don't really give anything else in return. Um, so I hope, I hope that this is a time and an opportunity for us to really raise the difficult questions about what does this mean for us right now, realizing that we have an election coming up, realizing that he is the Democratic nominee or will be the Democratic nominee, um, realizing that if we think about it, if we really want to get down to brass tacks, aside from there being in two different political parties, there's not too much, not too much different between the current inhabitant of the White House, 45, and and Mr. Biden. So, I mean, there, there are some things we need to really talk about and discuss and be real. And it reminds me of, you know, there was a speech, uh, I think it was a debate, I believe it was, I want to say it was, it might have been Stokely Carmichael and James Baldwin debating one another, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. And Stokely Carmichael, no, actually, it was um, Stokely Carmichael and Byron Rustin. They were having a debate with each other. And Stokely Carmichael was talking about how, you know, we cannot afford to vote for the lesser of two evils. Um, when are we going to get to the point where we say we don't vote for evil at all? Um, so just really thinking about that and what that means in the grand scheme of things and understanding that, you know, we're unfortunately, we don't really have the best political choices or options, um, particularly in this season. Um, does it does it really require for us right now to have to bite the bullet, so to speak, um, and vote for the lesser of two evils? And if that's the case, who is the lesser of two evils? How can we tell? How do we figure it out? Because sometimes a person who you vote for the person you think that you're going to get in office is not the person who shows up to office. Um, so it's, it's a lot of questions, but most immediately, I think there needs to be an apology um, and there needs to be one that's a genuine apology that unpacks and acknowledges the fact that that was wrong on so many levels. And I wonder what Uncle Obese has to say about it. Yes, he's been uh, quite uh, quiet <laughs> recently, so I'm, I'm very surprised about that. And that, that's a great point. And I actually thought right away, so thank you for the homework once again about the ballot versus the bullet. And this is one of the things that Malcolm was saying in his speech. So we're, we're, we're bringing, let's say, people who aren't from our community into our community, and they're speaking on behalf of all of us when we actually see they're not of us. Mm-hmm. That, that's number one. Number two, I actually thought about Hillary when she was, uh, you know, oh, when she was uh, called out for pandering, right? Using using pander, the pander, ain't pander, 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 exactly pander. using the ain't vernacular, so you know you know Joe had to come in and show out, so he he did, and he mm-hmm. like you said he doubled down incorrectly. You're absolutely right, and it reminds you like you said Hillary Clinton, you know when she was on the Breakfast Club again. Oh, I, I have hot sauce in my bag, right? Exactly. Um, when she's making these tours and she's going with a number of different black figures and TV um, TV analysts, political pundits, etc., and she's doing the Chicago two-step or whatever dance she's doing. Um, <laughs> and, you know, there's times when we go back to even back in the day, you know, when she was talking about um, folks being, uh, black folks being uh, thugs or super super predators, right? I, I remember that term, yes. So when you think about all these pieces and you think about how sometimes we get so enamored with a particular uh, political party, um, and it begs the question because there might be some people who, um, are painted as extremists. There might be some people who are painted as those who um, 
want to just create records for records sake. You think about people who talk about Blexit and asking black folks to exit the Democratic Party. You think about all these things and you have to see that you have to sift through some of the nonsense and some of the noise and, and, and find bits and pieces of truth, things that we need to examine, things that we really need to unpack and think about. What is it that we've been doing that has not been working, that has been detrimental to our culture? And what are some of the things we should start thinking about doing as we move forward with new elections um, at all levels, not just at the national level, but at the local, regional level as well? Um, we always talk about what's the black agenda. I know that's a question that's always asked when folks are on these political campaigns. And you know, I was just having a conversation with my brother-in-law because I was thinking about that as well. I'm like, yo, I mean, even if we were to come up with a political black agenda, so to speak, um, realizing that we're not a monolith, realizing that there's so much diversity within the black community, we as a collective, we probably wouldn't even know where to begin and talk about a fundamental black agenda. Mm. Or maybe we would, or maybe we would. However, who is going to be that person to carry it out? And how how do we um, hold that person accountable to make sure that they do it? Because once they get our votes and get into the office, to what extent do we have um, the, the, the type of, uh, I guess, organization, um, all the type of efforts and power to actually make sure that we hold these folks accountable. Um, so even if we put one forth, will it actually be carried out? I just don't know. Yeah, it's true. And I'm actually really worried because even though Hillary did what she did during campaign time, people still voted for Trump. So now that Joe has literally repeated history twice, now I'm I'm even more worried about not only Trump winning, but when Trump won initially, people kind of went into hibernation. They just wanted to ha they gave themselves conscious cognitive distance. Oh, you're not my president. I didn't vote for you. Well, you also didn't vote for the other person that would prevent him from being in office. So you're probably going to do it again. Number one. Number two, in those four years, it's probably going to make the country a lot worse. Most likely, number one, or that's number two, sorry. And number three, he's going to make people so disinterested in politics that so many policies are going to sift through without any public awareness. And you're absolutely right. And, and, and that's why it always brings you back to this point, is that we can't afford to put our faith in one individual, nor can we afford to put our faith in one particular institution. When you think about all the things that we've heard, from different people, um, politicians along the campaign trail, whether they were running for office or whether they were in office. When we remember to when Trump was running for office and he literally said about black folks, what do you have to lose? What do you have to lose, right? So you have something like that and then you have this person, Biden, who's saying, if you don't know whether you're for him or for me, then you black. Like, I'm, I'm kind of seeing a difficult way of saying that those things are fundamentally different because either way you package it, it's disrespect. Either way you package it, you don't know my experience because if you did, you wouldn't say those words. So when we when we talk about who's going to be the best person to represent us, first of all, we have to define us, realizing that we're not a monolith, realizing that we're all going to have different approaches, philosophies, etc. Um, but how do we hold the people that we choose to, to be accountable for the things that they've promised us along the way. And sometimes we ask for things after the fact. Right. We give all our support up front and then we hope for things to happen after the fact, but we don't do the necessary gra groundwork and legwork to make sure we can get these things in place before they even get into office. 
It's true. When we actually have the leverage, we don't use the leverage, which is interesting. And absolutely. Th- absolutely. And then I get worried because, okay, so within our community, I feel like whenever we, we interact with other racists, a lot, a lot of the times those comments come out all the time. And it's just, it's just only recently that they're being captured now. So I know for me personally, things like that have happened frequently, right? Because as I'm sure you know, as a person with a wonderful vocabulary, anytime that a person of our hue uses a great vocabulary, oh, you don't seem like them at all, right? Mm-hmm. You're so articulate. Wow, you are so well-spoken. Look at you. Mm-hmm. And and you know what? what? What I'm what I'm tired of is that first and foremost, black culture is one of the most exported um, goods in the world. Like they export it to different cultures, different countries, continents, whatever. And it's always a soundbite. It's always fashionable. It always comes out with like some type of latest dance move. There's a lot of cultural appropriation that. Uh, folks capitalize off of black culture. Um, and what I'm tired of seeing actually is just seeing our lives play out for the whole world because I feel mm-hmm. like we don't really see the lives of other cultures, races, ethnicities play out in front of us in real time. I feel like our highs, not too many of them, but mostly our lows are often played out in, in front of everyone where they have access to it, whether it's people being killed by the police, whether there's whether there's crime within our communities, whether it's um, a politician politician saying that you ain't black, um, whether it's someone telling our athletes to shut up and dribble, Mm. um, whether it's our athletes trying to take a knee in order to take a stand and them being called SOBs. Like, I feel like everything that we see, our lives, our livelihoods are being portrayed, depicted, illustrated in the media. And we don't really see that happening too much, at least not in a negative way um, across cultures and divides. So, Every time I see these new snapshots and these sound bites and these things that happen, you know, it, it becomes annoying in some cases. And other times it's like, I wish that we can have more positive shown. But again, if you think about what people consume, when you think about what gets, gets the most likes, um, you realize that's why. It's true. And as we all know, I would say our people are probably the most exploited IP in terms of intellectual property around the globe so like you said we see a lot of the highs so things of entertainment so from professional sports to music you know some acting as well so it's just the positives can only be in this box here and anytime you're trying to go outside of that box we're gonna essentially put you in handcuffs or in a body bag unfortunately yes exactly and to add and amplify that point we haven't really always been the op- had the opportunity to control our own narrative. Um, because even when we do try to control our own narrative, because of because there are so many folks who are great with Photoshop, because there's so many folks who are great with like adding music and words and all these other things, someone can say one thing. That's why I think it's always important when you put things in our comments later on, when you're like, oh, make sure you listen to it in its entirety as to not get things misunderstood and misconstrued. Because folks will just splice and dice things in order for them to create their own narrative right. in order for them to portray whatever story they want to portray. Um, so I think that, you know, it's, it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we're as informed as possible, to make sure that we're looking at multitude of medium. So we can't just look at, oh, CNN and stay away from Fox. Mm-hmm. As an example, we have, to li- we have to listen to and look at as much as possible 
and in, in order for us to really be informed about where we stand and learn a little bit more about our ideologies, our identity, etc. We can't just be boxed out from something because if we get boxed out from something, then we're allowed to, we're allowing others to put us in the box, and we're we're not being able to be intellectually prepared to have a conversation with folks who might have a difference of opinion. Um, so I think it's important for us to make sure that we're listening to these things, staying up to date, even though sometimes it's very stressful, even though sometimes it's it's not ideal in terms of self care. We need to find a way to the best of our ability, unplugging from time to time, mm-hmm. but to the best of our ability, keeping our finger on the pulse of what's happening around us so we can be informed and make positive decisions about our future. It's true. It's very important to be aware of how the media works, what their business model is. As, and I'm sure, as we all know, their business model is to get ratings, whether that be positive, but most likely it's going to be negative because the negativity gets the most ratings. So it makes it totally makes sense that when let's say our people are on the news is usually for negative things, either negative things that we have done and or negative things happening to happening to us in abundance. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the question becomes now that this happened. Right. You have you have Uncle Joe. Right. Um, Who really is getting by because he was our first black president. Right. Obama. Uh, our first black president's VP. Mm-hmm. So he's like, you know, he's invited to the cookout, right? <laughs> yeah, folks saying that he's there, right? Um, because of that, um, I think that he doesn't get a pass. Because of that, I think he has even more expectations on his shoulder, or at least should, because you were close to not only history, um, but close to greatness, um, particularly for such a moment like this where the first black president real black president, right, <laughs> was elected, um, and you're around Michelle Obama and all her brilliance, excellence, and beauty, right? You think about knowing our situation. I don't know who's in his camp who might have told him to say that, or if that was just him, Joe being Joe, going rogue, whatever. But it's, it's important. It really is important for us to make sure that we're holding folks accountable. And if if we can't get a response from them that says, hey, you know what? I apologize. I'm sorry. Um, I think this is a leveraging point now. You done messed up, Joe. You done messed up. So now what are you going to do for us in order to make sure that we show up and show up for you the same way that the sisters, mostly the sisters, right, did back in South Carolina so he could have his resurgence because we would have been thinking about someone else if it wasn't for them. It's true. And I have to agree with Dean here. How can we reclaim the black IP? And I think it's kind of doing what we're doing now, creating our own media platforms for us to populate and grow and, you know, essentially deliver news in an, you know, in a factual way, just stating facts plainly, because as we know, in the media, it's a lot of, uh, a lot of bells and whistles. And it kind of reminds me of, you remember those uh, family photos where they have to take photos of the infant and you have mm-hmm. one person with the stuffed animal and the other person mm-hmm. with the camera. That's I always feel like that transaction is happening in the media when they're communicating to people in general. But maybe that's mm. just me. Mm. I hear that. I hear that. And I agree with you. Um, I think that we need to leverage um, the technology that we have at our fingertips. We need to leverage the media platforms that we have, social media and otherwise, to not only be consumers, but more importantly, be content creators, like you said. We have time and space to do it. I appreciate people like you um, who always like push me to make sure that I can be a content creator um, because I have stuff to offer and stuff to share that I otherwise wouldn't do oh, yes. unless I had someone like you pushing me 
um, someone like Andre Lee pushing me mm-hmm. um, and other folks, you know, just saying you should get out there and do it. Um, and I think more of us have to do that. And maybe it doesn't just look this way. I know there are a lot of writers out there. I know there are a lot of people who just got their, you know, their doctorates. I know there are a lot of people who have been working in family medicine. We need folks from our culture who have our best interests in mind, um, who have been through similar experiences, are from different backgrounds, different walks of life maybe, but have one common goal, and that's to better us as a community. Um, We need them to start putting stuff on wax, so to speak. Publish a book. Come out with a a, uh, web series. Mm. you know, have start a YouTube channel, start an IG channel that that pumps positive information that we can all use to better ourselves and strengthen ourselves as a community. Um, so I think I think you're absolutely right when you when you answer that. Thousand percent. And for me, whenever you have whenever you're in close proximity to people like yourself, for me it's a no brainer. I'm like, okay, let's put a let's put a mic in front of this person and always magical things will happen. Because unfortunately, as we know, in the world, the world is set up so you feel less than. This is why we glorify and essentially deify the celebrities and the athletes the similar way that they did the, you know, the Greek gods and the Olympians, all all that nonsense. It's all it's all a circus, right? And we understand that it's it's money driven. However, you also have to be confident in yourself and your ability to know that you can also play in the same arena maybe not in the same sport because at at the end of the day when you enter the arena you can enter the arena as a consumer as a performer as an owner or as an executive there's multiple different ways that you can enter the arena very true and just to play off that circus analogy i mean i'm tired of being the animal Mm. i'm tired of being the elephant the tiger the monkey I want to be the ringmaster, realizing that this place might always be a circus. Um, I just want to be the one who's in control because I tell you right now, I'm not going to abuse those animals. Um, I just want to make sure that we can all work together and be better. But usually when we're in a position of being the circus animal, the ringmaster usually doesn't have our best interests in mind. They exploit us. Um, They make us do performative things and they never really actually give us what we are due in terms of, you know, we're producing, we're you know, giving them money, revenue, et cetera. But what are we getting? Are we being treated well? Are we going to be released back into the wild where we were taken from? Um, there's, there's a number of different things to think about. So, um, yeah, I'm, I, I don't mind the circus. You know, I used, I, I used to joke about it. <laughs> yes. I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mind the circus. <laughs> I, I just want to be the ringmaster. And I think that's a fair analogy and a fair point. And unfortunately, it's, it's like if we're lucky enough to get to the circus, because sometimes they might come to the wild where they view us as animals and start hunting. And now we're on someone's mantle type mm-hmm. of thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's like whatever arena we're able to be in. And this is why it's important when we talk about being in spaces that uh, where we might be the only, where we might be viewed as the other is important for us. If we're fortunate enough to be in certain arenas, to not waste time and space, to actually make a difference, make an impact, be relevant. Make sure that we're not taking that space up and doing nothing with it, but actually trying to use that position of power for progress. I really thinking about that. Absolutely, and I have to agree with Pierre's comment. Shout out to P Work. A lion definitely has the power to kill the ringmaster if given the opportunity. I mean, we see this all the time, right? With the uh, with the Tiger King and and whatnot. Or instances where people are trying to 
domesticate wild animals and unfortunately get their faces ripped off. It, it happens. And to that point, once a lion wakes up and realizes who it is, because mm. there are times when the lion might think it's a little domestic cat. Right. Um, or, or even worse, a stuffed, a stuffed lion, right? Mm-hmm. So once that lion wakes up, that's a different story. And when we talk about the consciousness in people, um, I think there's a lot of stuffed lions <laughs> sitting on couches. Just yes. sitting on couches right now. We need some lions to wake up and really realize they're a lion. Look in the mirror and start roaring. You know what I mean? Exactly. A little too much, uh, being a little too docile here. We need you to look, look spry out there. Look alive out there. And then for you, if you don't mind me asking, if you were Charlemagne or if you were, actually, no, if, you're, if you were the president, former President Obama, how would you respond to Joe's comments? Hmm. That's a loaded question for so many reasons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let me start by saying if I was Charlemagne, and I understand that, you know, there are times when, there are times when because of production, et cetera, the show might have to move forward on, you know, they cut the interview short, et cetera. But I think it's important in that moment to say, what do you mean by that? Mm. Right? To actually challenge and push back. Because I've seen him challenge and push back a lot of different people on some wild stuff too. He's he's he said some wild stuff before to a number of different people. So why not him? Um, I'd be like, what do you mean by that? So when you said you ain't black, what exactly is black? You know what I mean? So I would ask that question. Um, and if 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 I'm Obama, again, politics is a crazy thing, man. It's a crazy thing, and that you know sometimes. Sometimes it's difficult to play your position and try to, how do I say this? I'm trying to say this as delicate as possible. I'm trying to be responsible. Sometimes it's important for you to address a situation realizing that you kind of made similar mistakes. Um, You just happen to be of a darker hue. (laughs) Yeah. so, because a lot of people might say Obama's not black for a number of different reasons. Um, because there's always a respectability politics. You have identity politics. You know, you have, oh, but he's half white. Oh, but he's this, he's that. His experience is different, etc. So, I mean, because you, you, you're caught in a rock, between a rock and a hard place in that situation. So I don't know what he would say. My thing is, of course, what he would do is probably say, you know, Joe was just speaking off the cuff, you know. Um, these are some of the conversations he and I have often had before. And he was just trying to drive home a point that, guess what? I'm the choice. And sometimes we need to say crazy things in order to get folks to do what they need to do, which is their responsibility. So I'm sure it would be something like that that he would say. Um, but, yeah, I'm glad I don't have to say anything about that. It's true. Uh, and be careful, because after that, they might hire you to be uh, on the spin team. So be careful. You might be drafted for that. And I feel like hey, if that green is. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like if if I'm Charlemagne, you know, hypothetically in the situation, I think he did what he was supposed to do as someone in the media. I mean, he made a meal out of that. I mean, you had Charlemagne on CNN. I mean, it, it couldn't get much better than that. So I think he he did what he was supposed to do, being that he's leveraging his media access and i feel like we all know that he's kind of outgrown the breakfast club so mm-hmm. i'm sure he's trying to move into a different space so we could mm-hmm. we could go into that later and then for obama I, I agree because at the same time 
You guys are in the same party. He was on the ticket with you twice. And mm-hmm. possibly you might need the same party to support your wife in another four years. So as a poli sci major, you kind of have to play the long game here. And you're going to have to have you're going to have to take this one on the chin, unfortunately, if you want to have politics as usual. However, I think we both can agree that maybe that's not the best path forward. Yeah. And, you know, I, I often find myself, this is a question I always wrestle with, is what is the best path forward? Mm. What is the best way forward? Um, like, we always talk about, you know, sometimes folks put money over more. Oh, by the way, Mix, I think your uh, your your mic went out. Can you hear me? Oh yeah, there we go. Okay. Um, so usually, uh, thank you, appreciate that. So usually, like uh, when we don't have like binary situations, we have to choose between two, right? Um, I think it really it really begs the question: Is our current political structure in the United States of America one that should that we should continue to uphold? I mean, we know there are some things that are outdated. We know there's some things that don't really work. We know about gerrymandering. We know about how unfair the electoral co- um, college is. We know about all these things. The question becomes, how do we put together a political party, a political system where folks can vote that's more representative of a democracy, an actual democracy? So thinking about the way forward, I mean, there's got to be something better than this because this ain't cutting it. It's true. And I have to shout out JP and it's a fair question. Do we consider Charlemagne a black leader? Unfortunately, he is. He he is an influencer in the community in a multitude of spaces because of his platform. And what I would say is that usually the way I would determine leadership is is not whether you're a negative leader or a positive leader, it's whether or not you have followers. Right. And because he has a huge following, he is a leader. Do I think he's responsible with his leadership? At times. I think other times he's very irresponsible. Um, but then again, you know, shock value, shock jock. Um, at what point do you put your position, your job over the power and the purpose that you really have? And sometimes people try to do both, but it's a, it's a, it's a tough dance. It's a tough dance. But again, we have entertainers who are leaders. We have artists who are rappers, who are like the prophets of the hood. We have um, basketball players, football players, etc., who people turn to because they have huge following. The question is, should they be leaders? Mm. Um, when we think about it, what's traditional black leadership? You think about folks who are a part of organizations. You think about Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X leading organizations, right? You think about people who have a following in that regard, whereas grassroots. You think about folks in the Black Panther Party. You think about folks who have organizations that give them power and they're leading members within an organization with a particular purpose and function. Um, and then you think about some folks who just simply have followers because they have a mass following. So sometimes it's really about being responsible. What can you do with your platform? And that's why no matter what, I realize that no matter where I speak, no matter what platform I'm on, I know just because I'm in education and there's a lot of people who might just Google my name. Mm-hmm. I'm responsible. I'm responsible to make sure that I'm not saying no crazy, reckless, wild stuff because there are people who are listening to me who take me as a credible leader, right? which I appreciate and I would not disrespect nor would I take them for granted. So when I'm thinking about that, there are plenty of times when I always, like you heard in the beginning of the song, in, in the opening song, I've been trying to live my life putting purpose over profit. That's how I rock. 
Um, and that's what I try to do. And sometimes that's really difficult. It's true. And it is difficult because as Pierre is saying, the family has to, you know, has to feed, you know, and unfortunately in this world, we need money in order to live and survive and, and thrive. However, there's a way to balance it with purpose and passion and not just, you know, taking the easy money grab. And, and here's the thing. And I, and I, and I know that dance. I know that dance. And first and foremost, Charlemagne gets paid way more than I do. Mm-hmm. And I won't say whose job is harder. I'm not into that because I don't know his life. All I'm saying is I do that delicate dance every single day, realizing that I have a family to feed. So I can't just show up however I want to show up because I'm feeling a certain type of way. However, one of the things that was shared to, shared with me by uh, my head of school, actually, um, he talked about this whole notion of natural prompts. Ah. Looking for a natural prompt to actually address the situation. So, for example, if I'm in conversation with someone and someone says some wild, reckless stuff, I'm going to ask them about that wild, reckless statement. It's a teaching moment. Absolutely. It's a a teaching moment. And usually what I've learned, too, particularly working at Quaker institutions, is you don't tell somebody something. You pose a question. So I always pose questions and inquiries. I might say, hey, is it possible that blah, 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 blah? I didn't call you out your name. I didn't say you were racist. I said, is it possible? Can we even entertain this conversation? So I think there are smart ways about going, about using your position and your power and your platform while still being profitable. And I think that also what bothers me is because what's woven into that statement sometimes is that folks don't want to see the truth. It's true. Because I would, I would, I would be willing to bet that you might lose some folks, but you also might gain a whole lot of people because you're like, all right, now I'm rocking with the Breakfast Club because he's bringing that real. He's bringing that real, that intellectual real. He's challenging authority, blah, blah, blah. And I think that we have to get past that sometimes. Mm. And sometimes we have folks who have to like fall on that sword. You know what I mean? Right. And, you know, there's times that I have conversations with my wife all the time. And it's like, uh, I want to do this, but it's not the right moment to do this. And then I wait for the right time to do it. And it's like, you know what? All that racist stuff and all those crazy things y'all were doing before, I'm going to point it out now because now the right time and place. Before I would have been come, they would have been, oh, he's so angry. He's this, he's that, and the third. So it was, that's the that's the long game that you're talking about. Exactly. But if you don't play the game at all, or if you're only on one side of the court the whole time, I'm like, fam, you don't want to play no type of defense? You're it's, just all about offense? It's true. And when you play the long game, then you have perfectly timed examples that this present themselves to you as is essentially our second topic, which is this here. Let's uh, play the clip for the folks. Please don't come close to me. Sir, I'm asking you to stop recording. Please don't come close to me. Please take your phone off. Please don't come close to me. Please call the cops. Please call the cops. I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. Please tell them whatever you like. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. I'm being threatened by a man in the ramble. Please send the cops. 
Wow. That was a uh, that was quite interesting. Um very very conscious, very deliberate, and I would say gave a great overall performance. And I feel like this ha hasn't been her first time doing that. What do you think, Mix? Not at all. I think that she definitely has been a uh, consecutive winner of the Karen Award. <laughs> um, <laughs> give her a Karen. Um, <laughs> like, talk about talk about weaponized whiteness. Mm. That's what that is. Mm -hmm. That is what that is. A hundred percent. And you know, I was reading some articles, and you know, some quotes that she had was, "I am not racist." Uh, yes. And and. I was not trying to hurt him in any way, shape, or form. You literally went straight to his race, called the cops, and told him what you were going to do. I'm going to call the cops and tell him that an African-American man. So again, don't, don't come at me with I'm not racist. No, please don't. Please don't. Because again, we always play the game about I'm not racist. I have black friends. I love all people, etc. I don't see color. Oh, yeah. So when we talk about all these pieces, right, the first thing that you went to was Karen 101. Like you probably studied that, you know, you took economics, you took, you know, food science and Karen 101. Um, and you automatically weaponize your whiteness. And that's a problem. That is a problem. And here's the thing. That could very well be true. That could very well be true um, because the, the sad reality is this. Some of the most dangerous people are those folks who say that they're not racist, mm -hmm. yet they are beneficiaries. And sometimes even those who create uh, racist or racism um, situations. Right. So. So what do you think about this situation? The fact that the number one that she number one thing she did instead of just walking away and putting her leash on her dog, which was illegal, by the yoking, way, <laughs> instead of yoking the dog up, looking like it was choking it out and it like got it in a noose. There's plenty of times that black folks have lost their lives. And the first thing that many white folks have said is they should have complied and followed simple commands. Now, he didn't give her a command in the sense of do this because I said so. He said, yo, you're in a public park and the rule is your dog needs to be on a leash. So it's not like, oh, um, do this because I said so, with a gun pointed in your face, or in a car with a shotgun and other people coming around to follow you because you're, you stole something, right? All this stuff. The minute she takes her phone out, she's been trained to do that. She's been conditioned to do that in one way, shape, or form. Either she saw it because she saw someone else do it, or she just knows that that's the card you play because it was scripted like scripted to a T. And then the acting, the fake tears and the, the intonation, everything, that's that's an Academy Award. Absolutely. And she didn't even hesitate. So she's like, so she may not, okay, she says she's not racist. Okay, Karen, or whatever your name is, number one. Number, Amy. Oh, Amy, okay, okay, Ames. Number two, 
you already knew you were socially aware enough with your lack of racism that I probably agree with JP. She probably is a liberal Democrat. You were aware to know the stereotype to go to, to in order to get the action that you want. So when I look at things like this, I look like I look at it like you're trying to micromanage my freedom. So simply because I didn't do what you want, you're going to you're going to take it to the next level. And so instead of de-escalating the situation, you're going to escalate to something to where it didn't need to be at all. Absolutely. And one of the most racist things in the whole situation is saying I'm not racist is taking out your phone, Mm -hmm. taking down your mask. Making a 911 call after you threaten about making a 911 call, saying that this person is African American, and driving home that point. If you're being threatened, mm-hmm. let's just say she was. Let's just say she was really being threatened. If you're being threatened, right? Usually you don't give those things out until someone says, "What does this person look like?" Right. You call and you say, "I'm being threatened," and you give your location. Oh, what seems to be the problem is I'm being threatened. Someone's following me. Blah blah blah. But you had in your consciousness, I'm going to say this African-American man is threatening me and my dog, and he's also recording me. So when you have these folks, I can't remember who said it, but my wife was reminding me about it. It's like they use, they use Karen's usually in some spaces, as we've seen, um, Permit Patty, um, you know, we've seen Barbecue Becky, all these folks who not only weaponize their whiteness, but also use police as their personal militia. Right. And it's scary, it's dangerous. And in these situations, yes, I'm introverted, you know that, you're introverted too. Um, But I don't really deal with strangers like that. Right. Um, Particularly if I don't know you, particularly if you're not within my culture, particularly if, um, you know, I haven't been introduced to you by a a person I trust, et cetera. I'm about my business. If I saw her over there, you know, without a dog on a leash, I'm walking the other way, I'm not not worrying about it because I, I, History has shown what happens in those situations. And fortunately, nobody got hurt, fortunately. But again, those situations are not ones I would even engage in. No, thank you. I'm good. It's true. And I have to agree with P here. Imagine if she wasn't, you know, violating her dog. Would would she get the same type of response? Um, no. So here's the thing. I mean... <laughs> And usually, you know, it's 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 so sad when we when we think about it that some folks might be so quick or quicker to go to a Peter rally than to go to a Black Lives Matter rally. Mm. And that's what it is. But then, um, for example, um, you think about certain certain things because I always talk about how pit bulls are like the black men of the world, right? Of the like pit bulls are the black men of the dog race, right? Or dog breeds in terms of breed legislation, etc. So that might be a little bit different when it comes to those type of dogs, right? Think about Mike Vick, et cetera, blah, blah. But yeah, they were still taken up for, you know, when you put a pit bull against a Mike Vick, a black man, and then a pit bull, right? Ones that are feared in both both parts of their or in their realms, they, they sided still with the dangerous pit bull. Right. Um, so that's, that says a lot. That says a lot about how we're valued or how we're not valued. Um, but again, another example of weaponized whiteness, another example and again, I'm not going. I'm not going to make assumptions, but I could imagine that she is a member of a number of different organizations that you and I would be like, "Oh wow, that she's doing good work," or she might be a member of a number of different causes that we're like, "Oh wow, we've donated to those same causes." 
Um, but then again, it's like at the end of the day, when stuff hits the fan, you know that you have that card. And it's funny because folks always accuse us of playing the race card. Right. <laughs> and it's like, hold up. How you got that card in your deck too? Right. That's crazy. Maybe because you created it. Maybe because the game is something that you created, that you rigged. Um, so, yeah, this another another example of weaponized whiteness. We've seen it happen so many times before, not just in public parks, not just in public spaces, but at private institutions, at colleges and universities, um, in places of, of, of work. We've seen it far too often. It's true. And I was curious what the, the gentleman was doing. So, again, I understand she's, you know, doesn't have her, her leash on the dog. But at the same time, I was like, I mean, personally, I wouldn't care. Like, I, I, don't, I don't care that much. And as we know in our community, snitches get stitches. And I feel like he was trying to snitch on her. But I understand he wanted to do his civic duty. He pays taxes as well. And I'm sure that some people, if uh, the shoe was on the other foot, they would probably do the same thing. Imagine if it was a black man with a pit bull without a leash. What would have happened then? My goodness. Are you kidding me? They would have locked both of them up. Right. One one's going to jail and one's going to the pound. Going right. To the kennel. Might be euthanized the next day. Um, it's, it's it's just it's just it's just wild crazy. And the things that really bothered me when I saw that video. I'm from Harlem, New York. I was born in '88. In '89 is when the Central Park Five happened. Oh right. So when you think about Central Park, like those those words alone, I see a white woman saying she's going to call the police on this black African-American man, right? And I'm like, this this, this is eerily familiar to how some things happen. And just, again, I know it's totally different situations. I understand that. All I'm saying is that I'm thinking about weaponized whiteness or how folks really respond to that damsel in distress, particularly if the person is a white woman, um, whereas they don't treat black women the same way. Police don't do that. Um, communities don't do that. They might see that black woman as a threat, not someone who is being attacked, but they might see that person as an attacker or an aggressor. So when we say that we don't have a race problem in America, I call bull. Mm. I call bull. And there's a lot of time when people say, oh, 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 everything's not about race. Everything is about race. It's just not only about race. There are other things that come into play, but because of the racist, capitalistic society we're in, it's usually one of two things, race and green, which is that money. And it's like, you see the intersectionality of all these other things that come into play, but race is usually an issue. And people realize that race is an issue, otherwise they wouldn't have weaponized whiteness. It's true. And I the entire time I was thinking about the irony just because at the end of the day and certain levels of police work, you have to, you know, work your way up. And one of those ways is being on the, being on the dispatch. So the irony that the dispatch person that she was talking to could have actually been black and she would have never even known. And she's still trying to pull that card. But, but that's, that's the audacity. And that's the, that's the boldness that comes with Paul Mooney said, that white folks have the complexion for the protection for, for the, the collection. collection. Yes. So people, you can't talk about that racism doesn't exist because skin privilege exists. You and I, as light-skinned black people, have more privilege than some of our darker brothers and sisters. Right. 
So when we talk about colorism, racism, et cetera, all those things are connected. It's just that when you talk about racism, it has economic consequences next to it because it's about whether or not you can systemically oppress a people in all realms of their life based off of the color of their skin. So again, it's a social construct that has real life implications and impact. So when people are taught, like you, you don't just wake up, like you either fight or flight, fight or flight. That's usually when you're, when you're feeling threatened, fight or flight. Weaponized whiteness. Didn't walk away from the situation, even walked towards them and was like, get out of my face. And then I'm calling the cops. Weaponized whiteness. The first thing that you do is I'm gonna pick up the phone, call the police and tell them that an African-American man is threatening me. Wow. And what he was doing in the park from what all the reports say is that he's a birder. So he was bird watching. And he was looking at the spaces where there was like some ground or ground dwelling birds um, and you know dogs who come through Central Park, um, particularly in certain spaces where they're not supposed to be or at least not supposed to be off leash, they can mess up habitat so they can mess up spaces. Oh, um, so, okay. So that's what he was doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And here's the other piece too, because, and, I, and maybe I'm making generalizations, but I ain't no birder. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, that's just not, so, and I wouldn't, again, I don't want to make assumptions and generalizations, but I, I wonder how things could have been if it was like, you know, just a regular Jerome Tyrone out there, <laughs> just minding his business, just walking around. He's not bird watching. But I just feel like, like what type of things are signals? We talked about signaling before. What kind of things are signals about some people having power or social clout or something that says they're safe so their story might be right and accurate, et cetera? I'm just thinking about all these things because it could have been something totally different. I heard the man saying things very calm, et cetera. What if it was someone who was like, yo, if you don't get in my face, blah, blah, blah. Like, what would that look like? How would Oof. it be viewed? But the question that I would love for folks, for folks in the comments to answer um, is this question. When these things get posted, who does it benefit? Who does it serve? When these things get posted, do we think that we're, it's really, truly going to bring about actual change? Do we think it's going to be a moment where we're just like, dang, she's trending? Or is it going to turn into a movement where folks are like, I don't want to be her, so I'm not going to do similar stuff? Or will we continue to see people weaponizing their whiteness? So those are the questions that I have because it's okay to post these things and pass it along and you know hashtag activism and all these things, right? But is it really going to bring about actual change? Is it a piece of the puzzle? Is it the whole puzzle? Or is it not going to change anything? It's true. And essentially, you just can't take tea for coffee or one of my favorite analogies, taking uh, oatmeal for grits because you can't you can't get me going to grits now. Come on now. No, I don't want that. <laughs> but yeah, I got to I got to agree with Jazz. So shout out to Jazz in the comments. I mean, come on, you can miss me with that. Who, who do you think you're talking to? Like, you, you, come on. That's it's outrageous. And I, we're officially coining this phrase mix is going to go viral. It's going to be Karen in distress. Karen in distress, 100%. Karen in distress, weaponized whiteness. That's exactly what it is. And yes, birth of a nation all day long. Mm. All day long. The angry, scary black man post-slavery is now having this crazy appetite for a white woman. And they're so dangerous. They're so dangerous. We've got to save them. Enter the Klan. The Klan has to protect their prize and their property. 
my goodness, my goodness. It's true. And uh, would you agree with JP's comment that there's no clear black representation in America? I would say that there is so much divisiveness within the black community. Um, again, go back to identity politics. Again, it goes back to folks um, not really not really understanding that we need to come together in order for us to move together. And we see in other cultures, other communities, they really ride out for one another. Right. They really do. Even when ish hits the fan, they stand by one another. And I think in that regard, in some cases, not all cases, we need to make sure that we can stand together and move forward towards a common goal. But we have to first identify what that North Star is. Like Harriet Tubman was like, listen, you going back to slavery? Nah, I got this gun, right? You either running with me to freedom or I'm going to shoot you right here where you stand because we're not doing it. We going north. We following the North Star. That's where freedom is. If you want to be a slave, I'm going to just, where you stand, bop, you're done. You're done. So we need to get on board again. Which way is our North Star? Towards liberation, towards freedom. And we all need to get in line with that and move towards that and realize any other distractions going backwards to the side, etc. It's not good enough. We can't do that. Yeah, it's true. And I'm just looking at the fantastic comments here and everyone's making great points. I think the the more these Karen and Becky incidents go viral, it will cause, you know, more more awareness. But in addition to what Chloe is saying, I mean, they're going to be more they're going to be more calculating. So it's going to be similar to you know what it's been like for like say the past couple of decades when you have the the closet racism because being racist is not chic right it's not chic anymore so when you get outed as a racist and you start losing your job and or your dog in this situation maybe we'll see i mean it'll cause it'll be a cause for pause as Stephen a likes to say but i think it'll it's kind of like whenever you have like use the analogy of a hacker so when you have a hacker they hack through and then you build up the defense and then there's always going to be a workaround. So I feel like there's always going to be a workaround to, to racism because it's, it does, really does run deep within emotions and blood. Absolutely. And when you think about it, it always goes back to what I always talk about. There's a difference between individuals and institutions. And this racist individual might have her life destroyed as she's saying her life is being destroyed right now. Um, which I think it's a lot. I mean, I understand how life is changing, but being destroyed, that's extra in my opinion. Mm. Um, but when you, when you, so, and that's another, that's another, like, it's another damsel in distress, Karen in distress, right? Um, but what are we talking about institutions? So if one racist buckles, doesn't mean that they're no longer going to be racist. Doesn't mean that they no longer will benefit from a racist society. And the institution and institutional racism has not changed. The needle has not moved. So we can, we can do all these things. So again, it reminds me of what's actually transactional, what's transformative, what's performative, or what's actually going to change in terms of policies that can eradicate systemic racism and institutional oppression. And you can't do that with a tweet. A tweet's not <laughs> yeah. going to do that. You know I mean? There's, there's so many things we need to do, and it has to, be, it has to be systemic because that's how these things were put in place. It didn't just happen overnight. So we can expect for it to happen overnight. But I think we lose stamina. We lose endurance because, again, we see people keep getting killed, etc. And then it's like, oh, I can't really rock with this. I don't have the strength. I don't have the energy. I'm bogged down from seeing all my life and all my livelihood and people in my community just being bogged down. 
there's so many things happening right now. And it's like, once you start to mourn one person or mourn one situation, another one pops up. That's damaging. It hurts. And it can cripple with people. It can. It's very traumatic. And it reminds me of Nasheed's lyrics. So shout out to Team Savage and Nasheed Linton straight from Trenton. His lyrics about being upset that it happens all the time. So in moments where we would actually need to keep our composure to prevent a damsel situation from escalating into, you know, the police coming and being the the executioners. But because of that built up animosity, we might because again, we're all human. We might lash out and it could actually escalate a problem and make it even worse for something that's like you said, that's already systemic. And, and to that point and to Dean's point as well, I want to lift up some quotes from the ancestors that I often always lift up one from um, W.E.B. Du Bois and the other one from Amos Wilson, Dr. Amos Wilson. First one from W.E.B. Du Bois, a system cannot fail those it was never meant to protect. So again, a system cannot fail those that was never meant to protect. We could talk about that, particularly if you're thinking about calling 911. Right. Like, you know, go back and study. Study, study police. Study policing. Study where those things came from. Do the research. Again, go do the research. And then another quote, if you want to understand any problem in America, you need to focus on who profits from that problem, not who suffers from that problem. That's Dr. Amos Wilson. Thank you. Dr. So again, so again, if you want to understand any problem in America, you need to focus on who profits from that problem, not who suffers from that problem. So again, in a racist, capitalistic society where people automatically dig in their pocket, take out their phone, and use their weaponized whiteness, is something going viral really going to make a difference? I, I would actually, you know, humbly play devil's advocate here as the son of an attorney. It could perhaps embolden other Karens and Beckys like, oh, this is all that happened. All that happens. And, and, and again, we're in the age and P work back me up here in the comments as someone who has multiple viral accounts on IG. You can actually leverage that negativity and use the Kardashian business model, whereas no news is bad news. Yep, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that too because I can also imagine a scenario where someone says, you know what? I just won't be over there and not part of the park anymore. I'll take my weaponized whiteness somewhere else. Mm -hmm. It's true, and unfortunately, I feel like this will also become a trend, but not, not, for, the, uh, not for the right reasons. Yeah, yeah, so just... Again, a racist, capitalistic society, man. It's a lot of things that continue to happen that's been happening for years, and it continues to allow some folks with the complexion, for the protection, for the collection, mm -hmm. to thrive, and others are just oppressed. It's true. And speaking of systematic, let's say, uh, mechanisms for oppression, we have uh, the college scandal and your own stomping grounds of the emissions so apparently they're only going to serve five months in jail does the crime excuse me does the time fit the crime and uh for those who don't know mikhail could you let them know that your background and you know education and policy and whatnot yo this story right here 
makes me hot, mm. hot and bothered under the collar. And I'm about to go in. I had to put my points down and make sure I ain't missing. And still, I'm sure I'm missing stuff. So my background, prior to what I do now, working in diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, I was an assistant director of admissions for a secondary school. I was assistant dean of admissions at a liberal arts college. And I was an associate director of college counseling for a high school. I've seen, as we say in the profession, both sides of the desk. I know what it means to admit folks to college, and I know what it means to help folks apply to college, and I know what it means to help folks apply to um, or get admitted into, into high school. Um, so I'm well-versed in the admissions process. And let's be clear. There are so many things wrong with the college admissions process to begin with. There are so many institutional inequities in the process to begin with. There are so many disadvantages, particularly for black and brown and poor people and marginalized folk from marginalized backgrounds to begin with. This, this ish right here is unfathomable. Mm. It's unconscionable. And it's like, hold up, wait a minute. This is really what's going on? So a few things, a few things. I've worked in the mission several times, right? different places, worked in college counseling. Here are the things that I just wanted to point out to people, right? So if we talk about public schools, we talk about public schools. There was a study that was, there was a report that went out maybe I think in 2019 that talked about that there is a, a racial funding gap um, and there's a discrepancy between predominantly white districts and predominantly non-white districts. Okay. And I think that funding gap is a total of about $23 billion, right? Public schools. We're talking about public schools. Now, the drastic difference in public school funding across racial lines due to property taxes, right? Because property taxes are a primary source of funding. So the more affluent neighborhoods, usually those folks pay higher property taxes, which means their school districts are usually stronger. Right. Because, again, you get funding from different places, but most of that primary resource or a primary source of funding comes from property taxes. So, again, if you live in a, the better neighborhood, mm -hmm. the more affluent, wealthy neighborhood, chances are your public school system is going to be a strong one. Right. So there's a discrepancy between the funding between predominantly white school districts, which are wealthier than those that are predominantly non-white school districts. That's one. That's public school. All right. So the question again, and we'll get back to this, but the question again is who is most privileged? Who is most privileged? Realize we all have levels of privilege in some way, shape, or form or fashion. Who is most privileged in a racist and capitalistic society? We not we didn't, we just scratching the tip of the iceberg. There's more. There's more. So you mean to tell me before you even get to college, before you have the opportunity to apply to college, it's about 16 years and change that you have to actually go through schooling, right? Some folks can't afford to live in certain neighborhoods, which means they can't afford to send their kids to certain schools that will guarantee them in some cases, or at least pretty much give them at least a good percentage of getting into college. I'm not saying whether it's a good or bad college, but getting into college and a four-year institution, not a two-year institution, not community college, but a four-year institution. Therefore, you don't have to worry about transferring, et cetera. So that, and, and as we know, currency is education. And sometimes you need a degree even to qualify for certain jobs. Right. Before, jobs that used to require an associate's degree 
now require a bachelor's degree. Jobs that used to require a bachelor's degree now require a master's and so on and so forth, right? So we talk about what is the ticket in order for you to get into this new class or this newfound wealth. It's usually through education. I saw a meme going around that said, we pay for school to get a job so we can have a job to pay for school. <laughs> and we think about these things, right? You think about the education system and how it's flawed. So that's one piece, right? You think again about this situation in terms of applying to college. Now, college is difficult to apply to, particularly if you're coming from a marginalized background, particularly if you don't have the funds, if you come from a low socioeconomic status, because you might be able to get fee waivers, but if you have poor college counselors or no college counselor at all, or if your college counselor has caseloads where you have about 300 students, it's impossible for you to really get the, t- the care and attention that you need, where you might not even think about fee waivers to the point where you can apply to how many colleges you want without having to worry about paying the application fee. Additionally, because of racism, because of lack of for, um, resources, um, there are times when college counselors, even if they have their best intentions in trying to help someone get to college, might do what's called undermatching, right? And undermatching is when someone looks at me and says, I went to Cornell University. Someone looks at me and says, oh, you shouldn't apply to Cornell. That's a reach for you. Ah, yeah. I I remember that during the uh, college admission days. Like, well, it's just not realistic for you, unfortunately. Yeah, you should think about other schools. So that's undermatching. So therefore, they're not knowing the culture. They're not knowing anything about us. They're like, their racism is like, your black behind not going to make it to this Ivy League institution. So you think about those things, right? So undermatching, you have that too. So these these are things that are just stacked against applicants from traditionally marginalized backgrounds, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Then we take it a step further, right? You think about those folks who have the, the resources, the money to get private tutors to help them with SAT prep, to help them with ACT prep, to help them even with PSAT prep, because if you take the PSAT in your 11th grade year, junior year, you can qualify for some scholarships, right? So there's a number of different things there. So if you don't have that, those folks who have a leg up are those who are more affluent. Because, again, there are some tests that don't really measure your aptitude. It's really gaming in some spaces. And the more practice you have and the more tips and strategies you have from inside professionals, that's a piece as well. Then you have advanced placement. Advanced placement, right, which is like, okay, um, you pay 90 dollars for this test to take an AP, and maybe if you get high credit, you can, you can not have to do a certain class at college. You'll be excused. You'll receive credit, although that's changing. And don't get me started about the college board. We could talk about that forever, but we're starting to see a little bit more so of people questioning these tests. And here's the here's the realty. The realty is this. We talk about standardized testing all the time. The SAT, right? I want folks to go look up the racist origins of the SAT. There's a man by the name of Carl Brigham. His name is Carl Brigham. He was a person who was a proponent of eugenics. If you don't know what eugenics is, go look up eugenics. Go look up eugenics. I'm not just going to give it to you. Go look up eugenics. So Carl Brigham, eugenics, created the SAT. Wow. Those things, racist in origin, boxing certain people out from opportunities to, to attain wealth, to attain a livelihood, to continue to make their family go and, and grow and thrive, Right. So you look at those racist origins of standardized testing. So when we talk about all these situations where the cards are stacked against a few, 
Yet, yet, some folks have a clear path, clear path. And, 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 and that's just not enough. So instead, I don't know if you call it lazy parenting. I don't know if you call it like, you know what, I'm just going to use my money because all the leg up that I had isn't good enough for me. I'm just going to do X, Y, and Z even more so. So you have these folks who just got caught in this varsity blues scandal. Even a dude who's a ringleader, I think he's only getting three years, something like that. Right. Something like that on a plea deal. And when you juxtapose that with some of the black mamas who were in the news back in 2011, et cetera. For example, Kelly Williams Bowler. She was the black mother who used her father's address for her daughter to enroll in a better school. She served nine days in jail in 2011 because she wanted a better district than the Akron, Ohio one she wanted. Mm-hmm. She also received three years probation and was required to complete 80 hours of community service. There's another black woman named Tanya McDowell, and I know there's other things that happened to her case, but in Connecticut, again, you see the discrepancies. Again, people have, people have the complexion for the protection for the collection. So you have these folks who are doing like gymnastics, <laughs> trying to do even gain even more advantages that they already had. Right. Even more pieces to that. The biggest statistics show, because folks always talk about affirmative action. Statistics show that the greatest beneficiaries of affirmative action, white women. Right. When we talk about folks saying, oh, I hate affirmative action, et cetera, blah, blah. We fail to talk about other admissions preferences. Legacy. Right. Mm-hmm. Did, your, did, your, did your parent go there? Are they a graduate from there? Right. You think about whether or not you're a a person who could be a a large donor. You can name a building after yourself. And these think about athletes and these add value on the on the application. Exactly. You think about athletes. Don't get me started about athletes and NCAA and amateurism and all the other stuff. Black labor, white wealth. Don't get me started about that. So we think about all these discrepancies, all the hoops that marginalized people have to jump through just to be told no from nine out of ten schools they apply to. Whereas you got these kids from very, very well-off families with the complexion for the protection for the collection doing extra, doing extra in order for them to get an unfair advantage and then they get no type of jail time. What are they going to do? Go spend time in jail like Martha Stewart did? Right. At Club Fed. So that's my long answer (laughs) to whether or not the time fits the crime. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And when you see these slaps on the wrist, again, like these viral videos that are going for it, nothing really happened. You know what I mean? Amy's going to find another job tomorrow. Amy's going to find another job. So this this whole viral thing, talking about her life's destroyed, sure. She's going to find another job tomorrow. Because last time I checked, there's a lot of people who are still hiring racist people. Right, intentionally. Or people who do things like that. Right? Absolutely. Just to, just to collect them, right, for the protection. Exactly. Because that might send the whistle out, oh, she thinks like us. She's like us. Let's bring them in. So when we talk about whether or not this situation, these folks actually got it. First of all, it took so long for it even to go to trial. Right. It took so long for things even to get addressed. And then folks out here copping plea deals with fines that are less than what they paid for <laughs> in order for the scandal to happen. Exactly. $500,000 trying to get your kids into school. I think you can, I think you can deal with a 250000 fine on top of a $150,000 fine. I think I could handle that. It's ridiculous. 
it is ridiculous and I, I can't wait for the for the time i don't know if it'll ever happen similar to to taxes right taxes on the wealth on the wealthy will there ever be a fine that's that corresponds with your actual worth similar to like child support it should be based upon your income level so it actually sends the message so that Absolutely. that would be that would be my first my first response to that number 2 of course the the crime and the time are not they they are not compatible at all the ish I mean, like you said, to you're essentially cheating in a system that's already rigged for you to not only win, but automatically end up on top. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and to that point, I want to I want to address these great comments. So we have a lot of black applicants are overmatched and can't finish. That's the problem, too. And college isn't for everyone. It shouldn't be the focus. Let's let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. And I see this response. If you acknowledge the structural problems with the education system, how can you simply say some people are black people? Um, people are black people are overmatched. Here's a question. The question is this. Are black folks being under are, are black folks being overmatched? Or are these institutions being under supportive? Mm. So when we talk about it, right? I talk about recruitment and I talk about retention. And then if you have recruitment, sometimes, as we've seen, you want your diversity. You want your diversity. You want your diversity. You might bend over backwards for that athlete who's going to give you diversity, but also going to be a star basketball player, football player, whatever. You might have that person who's strong in academics, but you might still think they're a risk because they come from a lower socioeconomic status, whatever the case may be. It is irresponsible of any institution to bring someone to their school and then not give them the support. It's not about overmatching. It's about under-supporting. And there's a lot of schools I've been in and I've seen it. It's like, okay, we can't wait for that person to come here. Okay, but when they get to campus, no one on the staff looks like them. Excuse me, no one in the factory looks like them. We want to talk about staff. It's probably people who are cleaning the schools, people who are in the the cafeteria, but no factory look like them. So it's like, okay, you invite me to this mansion party and you say it's all expenses paid, when I get there, I can eat whatever I want. But then when I get there, I'm the only black person. Right. And when I get there, people are looking at me like I'm weird. People are talking about, oh, you don't know what that shrimp fork is? So it's not about folks being overmatched. I haven't seen that. In my experience, I have not seen that at all. What I've seen, though, are folks being told you can't do this. What I've seen is people saying you shouldn't even apply there. And what I've also seen is folks trying to fill their quotas, right? And not actually putting support in place for students who get there. So when you think about all the things that are supposed to be there, again, it's a difference between welcoming and belonging. You might welcome me there, but when I get there, do I experience a true sense of belonging? And in order for me to experience a true sense of belonging, this space needs to be designed for me, reflective of me, representative of me. Otherwise, it's not a place I should be. So that's the piece, because there are some black folks, there are some brown folks who would kill whatever institution they go to. And I'm talking academically speaking, Mm -hmm. and I'm talking about extracurriculars as well. However, their environment, the environment that they're in completely changed the trajectory. And even if I think about a place, I think about my college experience. You and I both went to a very good high school, right? 
Shout out to Petty. We both went to a very good high school. We were prepared for whatever college morning went to. Alaviva. So Alaviva all day. So when I got the when I got to college, I was very, very, very prepared. However, the same thing you feel being in a racist society is the same thing I felt at a place that I had to feel like I was a politician rather than a student. Right. Like when it's time for us, I know I have the mental capacity and fortitude to get things done. My classmates, because of their racism and because of some of the things they've been taught, when it's time for us to do group work or break up with partners, everyone's running away from me because of all their biases. They think I'm not going to do my work. They think I'm not going to show up. They think I can't do the work. So there are other structural inequities that happen. You have folks who actually pay it forward and others who don't. So at school, there's a lot of white fraternities and sororities who used to give answers to problem sets, answers to tests, to their people. And meanwhile, I'm over here busting my butt, burning the midnight oil trying to study, and I get a 70, and they get a 100 because they had the answers. So again, it's not overmatched. It's undersupported. It's not designed for you. So a lot of systems, we truly are, we're designed, it wasn't, it wasn't designed for us. Right. So we're not going to thrive. It's, it's, it's like that old cartoon you see or the little ad you see. It's like if, it's just like with standardized testing. If you challenge a fish by whether or not they could climb a tree, come on now. Put me in some water. <laughs> yeah. Put me in some water. And we see if this bird over here could, could swim just like me. You know, so it's just like just thinking about certain things. And it, and, it, and that's really something that I want to be mindful of is because sometimes we start to point out. Sometimes we start to point out these things. We start to look at the individual. We get so caught up in the individual situation or person, but we don't look at the institutional structures that have been in place for years, years. And often we might turn to the other person and say, hey, you know, institutionally, uh, I think we're doing the best that we can. No, because you're only taking in certain types of individuals. You're supposed to grow and make room for people that you admit. And it's usually a cultural thing. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I think this situation in its entirety reminds me of the the industry and the business aspect of of uh, college, right? Of academics, because acad- academia is an industry. There's so much money involved. I mean, institutions like, oh, okay, we can list all the, the Ivy League institutions with which collectively probably have like a trillion dollars in endowment. Talk about it. And, and, you know, I just, there's just so many pieces that really, like, this is near and dear to my heart. That's why I'm in education. And like, I, I what, what I can't accept is when we start to turn fingers at the folks who are being the victims of a racist, racist, like institutional structure. So we talk about certain places of education or miseducation. It's a problem for me because mm-hmm. I think about if we look at the stats, right? And you know we're gonna have to look at these numbers again, but I think it takes on average, black students, it takes them the longest to graduate on average. I think it's about maybe six years and a few months. Then it's followed by like Hispanics. It's like five years and a few months, blah, 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 blah. Again, let's think about that. It's not about overmatching. It's about what type of environment am I walking into? What type of environment am I walking into? Where all I do is I walk into a space and I see a bunch of white faces looking at me because I was the head of school. 
when I was a headmaster or the headmistress, whatever you want to call them, when I have all my teachers who don't look like me and they think that I'm something that I'm not, when I have to actually code switch in order for me to survive, all these things I'm doing before I even get into the freaking classroom to take the test. So when we talk about these things, again, what is the atmosphere that folks are in? You might be a great swimmer, but if you tell, if you tell me that you have to swim now, with 25 pound vest on your on your back and you have to hold your breath for 15 seconds like are you gonna be able to swim as well as you did before no so again you have all the gifts talent but you don't have the resources or the atmosphere that's going to allow you to thrive other folks do and usually these are the folks who are not as gifted not as smart they just have the complexion for the protection for the collection and they have spaces that have been designed for them in order for them to keep these social inequities in place. Yeah, and I could definitely see, essentially, they're viewing it, in, let's say, in the emissions process, especially in terms of quotas. They're viewing it as, you know, accumulating assets. So you, you acquire an asset to leverage it and then make money off it in the future. It doesn't matter if the asset is, you know, nurtured there. It's just a, it's just a, you know, a wheel in the cog to get us further in the future, but then there'll be another wheel type of thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, we have to always, we always have to ask ourselves what's really happening, what's really at stake, because there's some people like we were talking about before, I wouldn't trust sending my, my child to just any school. I wouldn't, I wouldn't. It's not because they can't do the work. I'm worried about what my child's receiving at that institution. I'm worried about what type of messages they're getting on a daily basis. I'm wondering about what type of microaggressions they're hearing and experiencing on a daily basis. I'm wondering about whether or not they can focus on their schoolwork or if they have to worry about focusing on their survival just because they can't walk home late at night from the library for putting in work because someone's going to call them an N-word and throw something at their head. Right. Let alone with the hoodie, right? Because it could be cold out. You know, a lot Let of the alone with a hoodie. Right. I'm talking about your own campus police questioning who you are. So it's like there's just so many levels to it. And then sometimes, again, we always turn our finger back to the individual. Look at the institution and the institutional inequities are in place that prohibit this individual from actually being prosperous in that space. And that's not to say that there are no folks who go to a certain place and they don't do well because they just couldn't do well. But again, when we think about criteria for getting into some of these schools, when we think about the actual admissions process, some of these things just don't make sense because it doesn't measure the necessary things that need to be measured. Standardized tests are not standard. Some right. knowledge is not acquired in certain spaces. Because I know if we were going to give some folks who ace these SATs a cultural test that I created, not going to do well, boo-boo. Right. Not going to do well. So again... We have to be very mindful about looking at institutions as opposed to just individuals because we get caught up in individuals sometimes and in individual stories. But the institution and the institutional structures and equities, that's what we really need to pay our attention to. So I'm, I want you to put your futuristic cap on. So conservatively speaking, by the year 2050, the Caucasian race will no longer be the majority in the world do you see them getting 
uh, let's say the benefits of a proper affirmative action for them in the future when everyone else is, let's say, uh, more represented throughout the world in terms of race? Um, again, there's a difference between being optimistic and hopeful. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, 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 I'm not optimistic at all that I think because of how this, because of how this nation was founded, what it was founded on, I'm not convinced that folks who have white skin will no longer receive benefits from having the complexion for the protection for the collection, particularly in such a short period of time by 2050. I'm just not convinced. Now, folks who look like me and you in between, darker, et cetera, I think that we'll have, I'm hopeful that we'll have even greater opportunities. But I think we always have this conversation, always ask this conversation as a hypothetical without thinking about the actual steps that are required in order for that to become a reality. And that's my piece. What do we do to ensure that that happens? What are we going to do to make sure that things change? As opposed to saying, you know what? We should be having this change. No, 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 no. What are we going to do? Because folks will continue to tell us and tell us and tell us and tell us. So we're going to be like, yeah, yeah, because come 2050, yo, things going to be different. What are we doing differently in order for things to be different? Right. That's my question. It's true, because if we do the same things, I mean, by then, it'll be even more ingrained. And we won't even, well, we won't even be asking questions like this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm trying to read through these comments because it's a, it's a lot of it's a lot of heat going on over here. And I, I'm, I'm here for it. I want all the smoke. Um, it's great. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Listen, we might just have to have to do a do a whole show about education, man. We we Honestly. might. Because again, yes, college is not for everyone. But again, I wanna I wanna be very clear. I said this plenty of times. There's a difference between schooling and education. There's a difference between schooling and education. And there are times where we lose our children to school. They were never getting the education. They were getting miseducation. Or they were a token, or they were a diversity person who had to be brought in because schools trying to fulfill their quotas and they say, hey, we'll open the gate and let you play. If you look at the history of HBCUs, if you look at the history of colleges, period, like all these things will paint a picture and a story of how race has changed in America. So you think about colleges, the first colleges and universities were only open to these people. If you identified as white, male, Christian, wealthy, that's it. That's it. So then it's like when you start to see when were women allowed to go to school, when were black folks allowed to go to school, what schools were actually put in place, still problematic because sometimes these black schools were named after white folks who didn't really care about black people. Or they were actually, money was given to these schools and these institutions for the black folk, but they don't really care about black people. Mm -hmm. And because they pay money for it, they can dictate what actually happens. So it's deeper than that. We need to stop looking at the surface of things and go deeper and actually do the research and see exactly how this is all a part of a structural design. And things need to change, not just by happenstance, not just by coincidence or circumstance. We need to take action and make sure these things change. Yeah, it's definitely going to take a unified front for anything to to change, as you know, Malcolm was saying. So. I think the best way is to have conversations like this. I mean, have, having these difficult conversations, it doesn't, doesn't really happen often. 
I'm I'm sorry, Josh. I'm so sorry. I have to I have to respond to this. I'm so sorry. I, I just, go yeah, go for it. This nation was not founded on white supremacy. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Absolutely, it was. The abolitionist argument is the same thing as this Karen argument. You can be liberal, you can be progressive, but then you change tune when I step in the room. I talk about some of the Quaker institutions that I've been a part of, and it's one of the things that we talk about where it's um, in Quaker spaces. It's, uh, um, there is there is wisdom that can come from every corner of the room. My question to those folks was, when people said that, was anyone in the room who looked like me? If so they were, about, they, if they, were they probably think? were not a, uh, a citizen, let's say, at that point. Exactly. Exactly. So abolitionists. Yes, there were a lot of abolitionists. But guess what? These abolitionists once owned slaves. There are a lot of people who were Quakers who were abolitionists, but they also owned slaves. And then when they got rid of slaves and said, you know what, slavery is bad, folks still couldn't sit in their meeting houses with white folks. They had to sit in the colored section. So again, you can't tell me that this nation wasn't found in a white supremacy when this nation produced the whole notion of race, when this nation produced the whole notion of slavery, when this nation literally went and stole Africans and brought them over here to be... Um, the, the 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 foundation of this this place we call America for no pay. Yeah, sweat equity with no return. When they said exactly, when they said life, liberty, and happiness for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, who were they talking about? When they were talking about uh, all men are created equal, who were they talking about? Were we counted in that group? Were we a part of that demographic? So, yes, this nation was founded. And you might not say white supremacy because folks was even checking for black folks like that. Right. We were even seen as people. So if you're not even seeing someone as a person, it's like that's like me saying that's like a dog telling me that this place wasn't founded on um, um, human supremacy. No, it wasn't founded on human supremacy. You, that's what that's what you can have a conversation with a dog, right? It, it wasn't founded. We weren't checking. We, dogs were never even an equation. So what are you talking about? Like, it's never even in the equation. So it was just white. You can take the supremacy out. It was just white. That's it. And then because it was founded just by white folks for white folks, that's when the supremacy part comes in because once, once, they, once they start to give us a, a, a level playing field, even though, we had a four, even though they had a 400-year head start, right? Right. It's like, okay, let's try to reinforce this. Let's try to reinforce this. So when we talk about white supremacy, I don't even like to say white supremacy. I call it white insecurity. That's what I call it. And there's also a lot of white guilt with that white insecurity as well. So I'm sure there's some correlation there. I need I need folks that I like recommending books. I need folks to go read Michael Eric Dyson's book, Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America. Okay. Like for a place that talks about, for uh, for a country whose talking point, for for a country whose talking point is, um, we need to build a wall or we got to send immigrants out and all this other stuff. When these these mofo's were the first immigrants ever, 
it's, it's like talk about the hypocrisy. Yeah. What? Let me see your papers, fam. Definitely a lot of uh, selective. Mayflower, you think you big? Definitely a lot of selective morality there, and we we, we haven't even talked about the Native Americans yet. Mm. They were talk. So they were talking about all men. Otherwise, they would have said all white men. We were not considered human. We weren't considered human. Three fifths of a person, etc. We were not considered human. We weren't part of the conversation. We were the livestock, the oxen. And all these things, we can talk about what that actually means this day and age. But if they were thinking about black and brown people back then when they were founding this, this, this great nation, right? They weren't thinking about us as equals or as human beings, let alone men. Yeah, it's true. And I think the whole concept of Jim Crow kind of reiterates that notion. And then if we think about what happened in Africa, so shout out to Treese when we learned about, you know, apartheid and, and how Africa was literally, without even consulting any Africans, people from a different country, from a different continent, excuse me, decided like, you know what? You guys could take this area of this country. It doesn't matter what the people there think. We're going to get this. We're going to get that. You're going to get that. You're going to get that. We'll, we'll divide it like a pizza pie. Talk about it. And if you think about, if you know anything about the Civil War, think about the Civil War is that the Northern states, you know, they might get all the morale because they want to free the slaves, so to speak, right? It's really about profit. It was a fight over profit. How are all these Southern, Southern Confederate states making all this money off the slaves and we not? We want a piece of that pie. So like when we think about and look deeper and dig deeper and think about what these fights were for, were they really trying to abolish slavery because they didn't agree with slavery or did they really want a piece of the profit? And it's almost like, you know, that, that, that psychotic boyfriend or girlfriend who's like, yo, listen, if I can't be with you, no one can. Exactly. And that's pretty much what it was. So when you think about that, it's like, are they really thinking about you? Do they really value you or what you're worth, what you represent? And these comments are phenomenal. I think we, uh, I think we have exactly what we need to talk about next show. <laughs> it's real though. It's real. But and here's here's my question. My question is this. I always I always want to ask this question mm-hmm. because I know we got I know we got to wrap up. So my question is this. when we have our thoughts and ideas. Oh, I'm, excuse me. Mixed the uh, the the mic went out a little bit. It went a little light. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. So thank you. When we have our thoughts, our ideas, etc. My question is, where do they come from? What sources are we getting them from? Who's telling us? Are we looking at a number of different places or are we just looking at one source? So we have to diversify our sources so we can actually get a 360 perspective and think about where we stand. Additionally, when we think about rules or when we think about the constitution or we think about doctrine or when we think about laws or when we think about policies, who wrote them? When did they write them? Why did they write them? Where did they write them? For whom did they write them? We have to ask all those questions. We can't just accept it. We can't just accept it. We have to dig a little bit deeper. And I hope that I, I can challenge people to do what I do and really try to look through everything. And don't just take something at face value. Dig a little deeper. It, it is necessary because I feel like one of the main issues in society is that everything is all surface based. 
I mean, that's why you have underlining issues. The whole concept of an underlining issue is because everything is on the surface. And those underlining issues lead to those Karen in distress incidents. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow, these uh these comments are getting quite interesting. But guys, can we all just get along here, please? We're all in a safe space, right? <laughs> I think that I, I really, really enjoy challenge. I enjoy critique. Um, I love different perspectives, and I love to challenge folks on their perspectives. So I'm, I'm, I'm always ready. I'll stay ready. I'm ready to wrestle with some concepts. So, you know, next show we can definitely get after it. Uh, we could probably, if you want to, we can dig through some of these comments and, and figure out what some of the talking points might be for the next time we get together. I think a good one you brought up was uh, black labor, white wealth. And I feel like that that w- that can tie into the concept of white supremacy. So maybe we should actually define what, what that actually is. Absolutely. Sounds like a plan to me. OK, guys. And thank you once again for having an amazing conversation in the comments. And we will be here same time next week at 6 p.m., to get a fiery debate, but also a amazing conversation about topics that I think we can all agree are important, pivotal, and need to be talked about for our future progress. So I just wanted to say thank you everyone for watching and please stay safe out there. Yes, sir. You repeat what they created and get power to hate, but worst of all, we disappoint all the greats. Black lives matter, black lives matter, yeah, hey. Black lives matter, black lives matter, yeah, hey, hey.